Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, we got some mail. We got mail. Woohoo! So yes, the fine folks over at Devastator Books, which are uh, they are funny books for humans, sent us a book they thought that we would enjoy, and it is called A Field Guide to the Aliens of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Excellent. I do like a bit of Star Trek, and considering Star Trek Discovery has just hit. It's quite timely. Yes, yes, it is. And so this is kind of a parody book. It's actually really funny. Um, it's 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 basically written from like the perspective of like a like an eleven year old kid. Uh, going through <laughs> each season of Star Trek as he gets older, writing like a field guide to the aliens. So it's like each alien from each episode, and he sort of writes his like thoughts. And so it, it's done really in a creative way. Like the first chapter, the first season is all handwritten, and then it, it starts getting typed on like a typewriter, like a word processor, and then processor, and then eventually it's into like more of a like a computerized oh, that format. Sounds good. Um, and it's got pictures, and then it's 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 pretty funny because like as it gets further on it gets like into high school and stuff he starts to sort of reflect on the fact that like why am I still doing this like, in high school I have no friends but I, you know I'm still keeping up with these aliens and whatnot um, so it was really fun and and I enjoyed it quite a bit but I just thought I'd mention it so thank you to the fine folks at Devastator for sending that our way that sounds excellent I do like it when you take a bit of thought and it's not just uh, you know a, a boring you know just a load of facts and things I like it when they make it entertaining and difference as well yeah right right exactly yeah so this definitely qualifies as that yeah so that was a neat little gift to get in the mail and uh and our address is on the show notes if anybody else needs that but meanwhile why don't we uh let's move on to our episode shall we yeah yeah but first of all just uh i just need to add this bad time to the other day uh some wild-eyed eight foot tall maniac grabbed my neck tapped the back of my favorite head up against the barroom wall and he looked me crooked in the eye and he asked me if i paid my dues but you know what I did, Mike? I don't, actually. I, I just stared that big sucker right back in the eye, and I remembered what uh, this guy, old Jack Burton, always said at a time like that. <laughs> Have you paid your dues, Jack? And I said, yes, sir, the check is in the mail. <laughs> That's right, everybody. We're going after the ending of Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, a, a true classic if ever there was one. Yes, one of uh, John Carpenter's fine films. He did make some awfully good films. And this is a, a very funny one as well. Yeah, yeah. One of one of my favorites, without a doubt. Both of us, actually, yeah, obviously. Yeah. It's uh, so many good bits. Very quotable. Kurt Russell is just brilliant as a clueless idiot. Yeah. And I do yeah. like it. But we're also <laughs> going to be going after the ending of James Gunn's 2006 film, Slither. That's the one with the slugs and Nathan Fillion. Uh, I really enjoyed it, but it's you didn't quite enjoy it as much as I did, I think. Did you mind? Yeah, it's um, it's one of those movies I really wanted to love. You know, it is this sort of throwback horror flick, very 80s inspired. I like Nathan Fillion a lot. And it just sort of, it, it seemed to have all the ingredients that I, I really thought would make it one of those kind of beloved cult classics. And I know that it has a lot of fans out there for it, but, um, you know, 
Uh, yeah, it just doesn't work all that well for me. I don't dislike it. There are parts of it I do like. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think the whole scene where it starts with the girl in the bathtub and then the slugs like invade her house and take oh, over her family. Yeah, like yeah. that's that's really intense. But James Gunn really does like to lean towards the grotesque. Uh, and I find this movie really... Yeah, it does go dark, doesn't it? Yeah, it just... There's a lot of times when this movie is kind of hard to look at. Like, it's just so over the top with its grossness sometimes. That, and I'm not a huge fan of, like, overt gore. Yeah. So, yeah, it's okay. It's a movie... It's, it's, it's an okay film. I don't dislike it. I don't love it. You know, I've seen it a couple times, and that's, that's pretty good for me. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And apologies to my friend Pam, though, because I just found out the other day it's her favorite movie of all time. So when she hears this, she's probably going to be like, I, you're dead to me. But, well, no, you didn't uh, say you know. disliked it. You just said you didn't enjoy it as much as you usually do. Right, yeah. right, yeah. exactly. But we'll also be doing our top 10 films of 1970, uh, which oh, was yeah. quite a good banner, year. Banner year, I guess. <laughs> uh, but it's uh, mine seems to be an awful lot of Westerns in my list. So <laughs> Mine seems to be an awful lot of I could have watched more movies for 1970. <laughs> but... We'll get to that. Yeah, well, we'll do that in a bit. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, why don't we start off with the aforementioned Slither then and uh, get into our endings. Yes. Do you want to run through what happens in the film? Absolutely. So Slither, 2006, directed by James Gunn. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because he's the director of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Hmm. Guardians and of the Galaxy? It, What's that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, the film stars Nathan Fillion, Elizabeth Banks, and Michael Rooker, and the story goes that a meteorite crashes in Wheelsey, South Carolina, only to be found by local car dealer Grant Grant, played by Michael Rooker, who is quickly overtaken by a parasite from the meteor. Soon, pets start disappearing from the small town. Then Grant kidnaps a local woman and impregnates her with thousands of slithery alien slugs. Grant's wife, Starla, Elizabeth Banks, contacts local police chief Bill Party, played by Nathan Fillion, about Grant's strange behavior. Bill, who is still in love with Starla from high school, investigates and finds the impregnated woman who is gigantic, and I do mean gigantic, like the size <laughs> yes, of the house, yeah, yeah. Um, and she explodes, releasing hundreds of alien slugs. They infect most of the people with Bill and townspeople and turn them into zombie-like mind-control pawns. Bill, Starla, Mayor McCready, and a teenage girl named Kylie are just about the only people unaffected by the slugs, but the mayor eventually gets overtaken. Finally, Starla confronts Grant at their house and with Bill's help, they blow up the monstrously mutated Grant. When he dies, all of the slugs die too, dropping all of the town residents. Starla and injured Bill and Kylie leave the decimated house to look for help and medical attention for Bill. And in a post-credit scene, a cat approaches Grant's remains to feed on it and is infected. Dun dun dun! <laughs> Didn't see that coming. No, uh, that those, never happens. Yeah, for those of you out there wondering what happens next, well, we're going to tell you. Indeed we are. Phil, why don't you kick us off with your day after? I certainly will. And for those, if this is your first after the ending you've listened to, neither Mike or myself know what uh, the other one has done. So any similarities are just pure coincidence. That's just in case. I don't know if there are going to be similarities. Who knows? I was going to say that's awfully foreboding yeah. for since considering we haven't even started yet. I know. I just, thought, I just thought I'd throw that in there for, for new listeners. Fair enough. Always good to throw it in. Yeah. Okay, so my day after. Starla and Carly wait anxiously at the hospital for news on Bill. They'd have to travel to the next town over to find a, a, a hospital where they could take him. But eventually, a doctor comes out and tells him that Bill will live, but he needs a lot of rest. The doctor had never seen the kind of wound that he'd had, uh, that Bill had suffered. Unbeknownst to them, the doctor's report had been flagged in a top-secret government computer surveillance program. Passed through various department heads, it re finally reached a man known as Mr. Smith. Reading the report, Mr. Smith cursed and picked up a phone on his desk. He gave coordinates for the town of Wheelsey and then paused. Then he said, Initiate quarantine protocol. Elsewhere, a highly encrypted signal was beamed into space. 
Meanwhile, the infected cat had decided on a different course of action. The human host had proven unreliable, so the parasite decided it would focus on the four-legged creatures and those that could fly. And that's my day after. Hmm, interesting. Thank you. What have, what have you got for yours? Well, I was going to say, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but as as I was writing my, my ending, and I, I was thinking back to our conversation last week, and I was like, how is Phil going to avoid getting the X-Files involved <laughs> in this week's episode? So I'm curious to see. I thought that's where you are going with it. For no, because I, I did. That was... <laughs> <laughs> this was an obvious one to have the X-Files involved, but no, they're not in it. All right. Well, I, just, I figured, yes, that this might be a, a fair occasion to use them, but I'm, I'm glad you did. They were on another mission. Right. Right. Busy, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay, then. So what's happened with your day after? Okay. Well, it's three months after the events in Wheelsey. Bill and Starla have relocated to Portland, Oregon, as far away from South Carolina as they could get. Kylie came out with them to help Starla care for Bill as he healed from his wounds and because her whole family was killed in Wheelsey. In the months since, they've become something of a mom, dad, daughter, family unit. Meanwhile, back in Wheelsey, the cat that's been infected by the slug is carefully making plans to do absolutely nothing. Despite the slug's attempts to control the cat, it is powerless against the incredibly stubborn willpower <laughs> of an earth house cat. Try as it might, the slug can't get the cat to do anything beyond sleep, walk around lazily, and occasionally bat at a piece of string it found. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Unable to feed, the slug eventually shrivels and dies. And that's my day after. Wow, okay. Well, it just dawned on me. I was like, yeah, you know, these slugs can control humans. But really, have you ever tried to make a cat do something it doesn't want to do? I don't care if you're an alien or not. It ain't happening. That's an excellent point, yeah. Didn't think of that. I like that. <laughs> All right, so how about your immediate aftermath? Okay, the town of Wilsey was now just a smoking crater. Starla, Carly, and Bill watched the events on the news. It was being reported that it was a gas leak, but the trio knew that it was not the case. They were still in the hospital. Bill was recovering well, but he was having strange dreams. He was running through forests or flying through night skies. Speaking to Carly and Starla, they realised there was a chance it could be a connection to the parasite. They knew they would have to tell someone, but had no idea who would believe them. As they watched the news about Wheelsey, a man in a black suit entered the room. My name is Mr Smith. We need to talk, he said. Elsewhere, the parasite had made its way to the ocean. An infected shark headed towards a blue whale. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, I like that. That's kind of cool. That can make it for a neat visual. Yeah, that's what I thought. But you just Although these... James Gunn would probably just make it super gross. Yeah, well, they, well it's, sort of, it's all going to be infected, and there's like, you know, be the way uh, Grant Grant was all started getting twisted and everything. Just a cool looking mutated shark would be really good. Right. Okay, what have you, what have you got for your immediate aftermath now that the, uh, the cat has saved the world? Okay, well. Or has he? Uh, <laughs> maybe. Bill and Starla are at the doctor for Bill's monthly checkup. The government has been involved in their lives since the Wheelsy incident, having helped them relocate after their debriefing. The government made up a story about a toxic gas leak that killed off the entire small town, something they've had to do with increasing frequency in recent years, after the Super 8 incident, the faculty event, and an unnamed occurrence <laughs> at an Arctic research station. Oh. <laughs> Bill, Starla, and Kylie are among the few survivors of these alien incursions, so they're basically kept under the watchful eye of the government. Far from being prisoners, however, they're basically being paid to become consultants for the government, regularly being brought in and interviewed about their experiences, sharing their thoughts and opinions on alien-related matters, and generally being on call whenever needed. When a meteorite hits the ground in a remote area of Washington state, the government comes calling to Bill and Starla and Kylie for their help, only to find they're nowhere to be found. Oh, no, where are they? Just when they need it and they're not there. <laughs> well, I'll tell you in a little bit. Okay. Meanwhile, though, why don't you go ahead and give us your long term? Okay, the Earth was in chaos. Giant mutated creatures, a twisted amalgamation of various sea creatures, had made landfall on all continents. 
They had proceeded inland, absorbing life forms and spewing out spores that infected humans. The armed forces tried their best, but it was a losing battle. Bill, Carly and Starla waited with the hundreds of other people selected for rescue. Mr Smith had explained that there was no way to stop the parasite now as it was too embedded in the ecosystem. Therefore, a select group of humanity were chosen to be rescued. Bill and Carly had been chosen for their connection with the beast and they helped monitor its spread. And as Starla was uh, with them as well, she was included. Now they waited with the others at Devil's Tower, Wyoming. <laughs> there was a bright light and when it cleared, a bearded man stood before them. Hi, my name's Roy Neary, said the man to the assembled crowd. I'm sorry that it has come to this. I did leave uh, a message a few years ago about how to deal with it, but that obviously didn't work. However, my friends will be able to save you. As he spoke, bright lights filled the sky as a large spacecraft appeared. And that's my end. Oh, I love it. That was like a, almost like a sequel, our first like in-ending sequel to another ending. Yes, that's right. To the yes, I thought I'd go back to my Close Encounters of the Third Kind ending from uh, a couple just two weeks ago. Yeah, two yeah. weeks ago. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, go back and listen to it, and then then you'll see where the tie-in comes in. But that was brilliant. Yeah, it's all, it's I, all set up. Thank you very much. I like that. Very enjoyable. Yes, that's, uh, I I was quite I was quite pleased. I must admit when I. I thought of that. I went, ooh, that would be nice. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, no, I love it. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a sequel to a sequel. Sequel to a sequel that didn't exist in the first place. Yeah. So okay, then. I like it. Uh, what have you got for your long term? All right. Well, 10 years later, Bill takes an exploratory trip back to the mainland. Turned out that all his preparations had paid off. Finding the deserted tropical island, stocking it with food and supplies, and purchasing a private plane had saved him and his family when the slugs returned. He knew that they barely survived the first small-time invasion, and he had no desire to be a hero a second time. When the first news about the meteorite hit, Bill loaded up Starla and Kylie, and they retreated to the safety of their remote tropical island and waited to see what would happen. As Bill flew over the mainland, the cities were deserted. After a little more exploration, he realized that the slug invasion was over. The slugs had clearly won, but apparently they'd lived out their natural lifespan and died off, and now the planet was largely deserted. Bill returns to the island to share the news with Starla, Kylie, and his young son, Malcolm, who was born a year <laughs> or two after they arrived on the island. Middle name, Reynold, maybe? Yeah, uh, something like that. Yeah. yeah, could be. Uh, it turns out Bill had remembered to stock everything but birth control. <laughs> he asks them if they want to stay on the island or try to rebuild a life on the mainland, but nobody seems eager to return to a dead civilization. So the makeshift family continues to live a happy tropical life and never has to worry about aliens again. Oh, right. That's the end. Yeah. Uh, well, sort of a happy ending, despite the whole world being decimated. I mean, it's but... happy ending for our characters, yeah. not so much yeah. for the rest of the world. But really, we're only focused on them right now. So I think it counts as a win. Yeah, no, that's, that works for me. All right. So, uh, Phil, have you got any trivia about Slither for us? Yes. Slide on over, and I will tell you all about it. Oh, <laughs> who's, who's, hey, listen, it's my job to make the trivia puns, sir. Well, it wasn't so much a pun. That's true. All right, I'll 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 let it slide. This oh, time. excellent. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, okay. In the opening, scene, you referenced this film, but in the opening scene, as it pans down the street, you can see R.J. McCready's funeral home, which was Kate Russell's character in The Thing. Oh, cool. Which was a nice little touch. Right. Uh, Nathan Fillion was the last actor to be cast in the film, and he got the part a week before shooting began. And shooting lasted forty-seven days. Lloyd Kaufman, uh, who was you know the head of Troma Films, and also James James Gunn's former boss. He was in the film as a cameo as a sad drunk in the police station. Uh, Rob Zombie was the voice of Dr. Carl, talking to Starla on the phone. And Jenna Fish is in the film at the time she was, uh, well, you know her from The Office, and at the time she was married to James Gunn, and she was cast in the film. And two characters, Jenna and Emily, they were named after Jenna Fisher and her sister. So that was a nice little touch. Indeed. Yes. And that's uh, Slither. All right. Very cool. 
Well, we've talked a lot about uh, we've we've referenced some Kurt Russell stuff, so why don't we go right into an actual Kurt Russell movie and let's do Big Trouble in Little China, possibly one of the greatest films ever made. Yes, yeah, lots of fun, uh, and it's it's just so it's so crazy. I remember the first time seeing it and just going, "What? What? Go- oh my god, this is amazing!" And then watching it straight to straight away, you know, as soon as it finished, putting it back on again and seeing yeah, it so yeah, many yeah. times. Yeah, this is definitely one of those movies that through large portions of the late 80s and the early 90s, I, I watched all the time. Uh, you know, just one of those things where I would consistently watch it over and over again with, with friends or by myself, whatever, just, you know, introducing people to it. And, uh, you know, to this day, I can still quote a good number of lines from it, but I, I never get tired of this film and I really do love it. I do like the film. And I always want to watch it again whenever we talk about it. So, <laughs> Right, exactly. All right, well, why don't you go ahead and run us through the events? This should be quite interesting. Well, I've tried to keep it as brief as I can because there's a lot going on, but I think it all makes sense. Okay. Uh, Jack Burton, played by Kurt Russell, is the driver of the Porkchop Express. And he ends up having to help his friend uh, Wang Chi, played by Dennis Dunn, rescue Wang's green-eyed fiancé, Miao Yin, played by Susie Pai, and Gracie Law, Kim Cattrall, from an ancient sorcerer named David Lopan, played by the always brilliant James... Hong, who's been in so many things. Lopan is aided by three warriors known as the Three Storms, Thunder, Rain and Lightning, and his lair is also filled with various henchmen and a couple of strange creatures. Jack's truck is also stolen, but with the help of magician Egg Shen, played by Victor Wong, and uh, a few members of the local street gang, they defeat the Three Storms and rescue the Mao Yin and Gracie Law. Jack ends up killing Lopan with a skillful knife throw, and they escape in the Pork Chop Express. As they celebrate, Gracie asks Jack to stay with them, but he says farewell and hits the open road. As he drives off, we see an orangutan-like monster that had been in Lopan's lair has hitched a ride on the Pork Chop Express as he drives off into the wind and rain. And that's Big Trouble in Little China. Very nicely done. I think you covered it as well as you could without, you know, it's not really a film you can explain very yeah, easily. Yeah. So it's just a nice little refresher. It's there. a lot of good funny moments. Uh, and if you go into too much detail, it doesn't really make that much sense. If you're just talking about it, you do need to see right. what's going on. Exactly. Okay, but that was the film. What do you have happening the day after? All right. Well, John Edward Burton, Jack to his friends, wakes from his sleep with a start. He looks at the clock next to the bed. It's 1.39 in the morning. He had the dream again. He could never remember it very clearly, but it definitely involved a sorcerer of some sort and weird creatures and a big truck. He'd had the dream several times, but it was starting to occur more often. He turned and looked at his wife, Grace, sleeping peacefully next to him. He hadn't told her about the dreams yet. Jack tried to go back to sleep, but it eluded him. After a couple hours of restlessness, Jack got out of bed and walked downstairs. He checked on the kids on his way down the hall, then headed to his office. He poured himself a scotch, then pulled the latest profit and loss reports from his briefcase. Jack's small business, Burton Title Insurance, was doing well, but he could always stand to make a little more money. Grace wanted to put an addition on the house so the kids could have their own rooms, but Jack wasn't sure yet how he was going to afford it. As the sun started to rise in the east, Jack must have started to nod off because he could swear he heard a dreamlike laughter off in the distance. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Ooh, I like that. That's good. Thank you. Oh, did it actually happen or was it all a dream? We'll find mm, out. Okay. All right. Meanwhile, let's get to your day after. Okay. Jack Burton arrived in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. He'd been busy with a series of mundane deliveries, but he was helped by the orange creature from Lopans. Turns out the creature was treated poorly, and after a misunderstanding where he had tried to bite Jack's face off, <laughs> uh, they began to talk. Jack ended up calling the creature Windows, and after Windows had shaved, put on some clothes, a hat and a scarf, it was hard to tell that he wasn't human. Well, you know, a kind of funny looking human. Right, right. Uh, Jack kept trying to get Windows to put some sunglasses on, but he wouldn't do it. After making his, this delivery in Brighton Beach, also known as Little Odessa, Jack called 
into a bar owned by his friend Vasily. Window stayed in the pork chop express. He was pretty good at watching it, making sure nobody messed with it. Jack had forgotten that he owed Vasily 100 bucks, but he managed to cancel that by winning a bet involving vodka, onions, and a game of darts. <laughs> As they drank some more, Sergei, a mutual acquaintance of both, entered the bar in a panic. Vasily, he cried, they've taken Alex, my son, he is gone. And that's my day after. Okay, interesting. So maybe some big trouble in little Odessa, huh? Yeah, you could say that. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, I did. You, you did. know, I won't leave it unsaid if I can say it. No, you said it very well. Okay, <laughs> I, like to, I like to hammer those points home, Phil. You should know that about me by now. <laughs> well, sometimes you need to. Right. Uh, so what, what's happening then with yours then, with this weird laughter in the distance? Okay. Well, Jack's life is falling apart. Since the death of his youngest son, nothing in his life had meaning anymore. His marriage to Grace had taken the brunt of the fallout from the tragedy, and she'd taken Jack's other son with him. Alone and grieving, Jack had fallen into the bottle, with most nights ending up with Jack passed out drunk in front of the television. His business was floundering, as Jack was never there to serve his clients anymore. The dreams had gotten worse, and Jack had started hearing the demonic laughter even when he was fully awake now. He'd started to fear that he was losing his mind. One night, Jack ends up on the edge of town. He's in the middle of a thunderstorm, and he falls to his knees, yelling at the sky. Why, God, he shouts at the skies, what did I ever do to you? He drains the rest of the bottle of whiskey in his hands, then throws it at the sky. Suddenly, it stops short with a loud crash, as if it had hit an invisible force field. Jack looks up and realizes there's a crack in the sky, as if it was made out of glass. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Wow, has it all gone Truman Show? <laughs> eh, so maybe, sort of, maybe not, <laughs> a little bit. I know, I like that. That's, uh, that's good. It's very intriguing. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Thank you. Mm. All right, well, let's hear about your immediate aftermath. Okay, Vasily had got straight to work. He had arranged to get a crew together to help find Alex. Vasily was about to stand and explain what they were going to do when Jack stood up and began speaking to the group. Okay, I've dabbled in rescuing missing people before, began Jack. As he continued going on, the men looked over at Vasily, a puzzled look on their face. Who is this idiot? asked one in Russian. (laughs) He's a friend, said Vasily, also speaking in Russian. Let him speak. And then I will go over the proper plan. He's an idiot, said the man. Jack finished his speech, which had been full of mixed metaphors and no actual content. <laughs> Thank you, Jack, said Vasily Huda. Then spoke to the others in Russian and went into a very detailed plan of where they were going to go, what they were going to do, and how they were going to rescue Alex. They then all began picking up weapons along with bundles of herbs and religious symbols. Jack couldn't speak Russian, but he kept hearing the same phrase over and over. What's a Lady Gaga, he asked. <laughs> no, no, Baba Yaga, corrected Vasily. <laughs> She's bad news, Tovarish. If she's taking kids, said Jack, then the bitch must die. No, no, not bitch, said one of the Russians. Witch. And that's my immediate aftermath. <laughs> I like it. Very true to the character of Jack. Yeah. I like that. Never has a clue what's actually going on. Right, right, exactly. Okay, though, but what's happened with yours and this crack in the sky? All right. Well, Jack picks up a large rock and throws it at the fissure in the sky. With a thunderous noise, it crashes through the invisible wall, and a previously unseen barrier shatters. With an explosion of thunder, lightning, and rain, there's a huge flash of light, and the scenery around him transforms. He finds himself in an underground catacomb of sorts. Jack looks at his feet and sees a broken hourglass lying on the floor, with sand spilling out of it. He realizes he's no longer wearing a suit or glasses, but instead leather boots, jeans, and an Art Deco t-shirt. Suddenly, it all comes back to him, how he'd been captured by Mai Pan, Lopan's brother. Driven by revenge for the death of his brother, he had captured everyone involved in the Big Trouble incident and imprisoned them in mystical hourglasses that built up imaginary perfect lives, only to see them painfully ripped apart over and over again. Oh, that's an evil torture. Yes, indeed. Okay. It was the ultimate revenge, but Jack had managed to break the spell and free himself. 
Looking around, he spies several other hourglasses and smashes them on the ground. Suddenly, Gracie, Wang Chi, Miao Yen, and Egg Shen are standing in front of him. They all look at Jack as the memories of what happened come back to them. As mystical creatures from around the underground begin to close in on the newly freed heroes, Jack says, All right, gang, just remember what old Jack Burton does when he wakes up from a mystical trap, is surrounded by monsters, and has to kill a revenged crazed mystic. (laughs) Yeah, Jack Burton just looks that big old mess right in the eye and he says, I've shaken the pillars of heaven, pal. Is that all you got? Mm -hmm. The madman and his monsters don't stand a chance. Oh, awesome. I like that. (laughs) Thank you. Let's hear how yours wraps up then. Give us your long term. Okay, Jack was lost. They'd gone to the old apartment building that Baby Jaguar or whatever the hell her name was lived. They'd made their way up the stairs, but the higher they went, the more spread out they became. Jack realised he'd been walking up the same flight of stairs for what seemed like hours. It had ended at a doorway which opened up onto a snowy forest. Jack was very confused. <laughs> he was also ra- rather nervous, and he kept checking his gun, but ended up dropping it in horror when he saw it turn into a snake. He had ended up wandering through the forest until he ended up outside a strange hut. It's mainly strange due to the fact that it was standing on two giant chicken legs. <laughs> What the flock is this, muttered Jack, as the legs <laughs> kneeled down and the door to the hut opened. Jack shrugged and went in. He was greeted by a sweet old woman in a room which had a nice fire going on and some like you know, cosy chairs and things. And she sat him down and poured him a cup of hot tea. Without thinking about it, Jack started drinking the tea and soon felt lightheaded. Whoa, mama, he said. I, I, I need to go find my friends. We're, we're looking for Baba Yaga. The old woman chuckled as she busied herself at the stove. She was making sure the fire was nice and hot. Jack drank the rest of his tea, and then shaking his head, he stood up, but stumbled backwards into the old woman, knocking her into the fire. He then fell over unconscious as the woman screamed. When he woke, he was in the landing of the apartment building. He eventually stumbled back to Vasily's bar to find everybody celebrating. Jack, Jack, where have you been? asked Vasily. We've got Alex, he's fine. You missed the crazy battle. Jack wandered over to the bar and drank a vodka. He had no idea what had happened, but Jack being Jack, he sank another shot, ruffled Alex's hair and said, Good to meet you, kid. And remember what old Jack Burton always says in situations like this? He paused, drank another shot, and motioned to the bartender. Make it a double and leave the bottle. <laughs> That's my after the ending. Oh, very nice. <laughs> Thank you. Very very Jack Burton. I yeah, like it. Yes. Yeah, I just thought I'd, uh, I'd stick with him being a total idiot and being a sidekick and never actually being part of the main events. Right, right, exactly. Very true to the spirit of the film. I like it. All right, well, Phil, I think it's time for some big trivia in Little China. So what do you got for us? <laughs> oh, dear God. Okay, yes. Kurt Russell had the flu during the scene uh, just after the brothel, so the sweat on his body is actually real. Fun. The opening scene with Egg Shen in the lawyer's office, you know, when he has the lightning amongst his hands, which I always quite like, that was added at the request of 20th Century Fox in order to make Jack Burton more heroic. Mm, right. Uh, and show, and shown a 20th Century Fox missed the point that Jack was the sidekick in the film. Right. Kurt Russell turned down the lead role in Highlander to make the film. I think that kind of worked out for the best for everyone, actually. Yeah, yeah, I do as well. Uh, the story was originally going to be set in the Wild West, but Carpenter decided to set it in modern times. And I think pretty good. The Pork Chop Express obviously would have been a horse if it had been in right, the Wild West. Right. So both Kim Cattrall and Susie Pye had brown eyes and they both had to wear green contact lenses. And at one point, the film was going to be a sequel to The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Hmm. Interesting. I'm mm. glad it wasn't. I know, yeah. But that's a big trouble in Little China. Well, let's move on then to our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, where Phil and I take uh, a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 films. This week, we are traveling back to 1970. So, Phil, why don't you fire up that good old time machine of yours and tell us what the world was like back in 1970. 1970, I think it was all like flares and brown wallpaper and bizarre stuff. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Uh, the UK Prime Minister was Harold Wilson, that ended up changing to Edward Heath. And over in the US, the President was Richard Nixon, who I believe was not a crook. 
Well, that's what he said. That's what he said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes performed their farewell concerts. The soap opera All My Children debuted on ABC over in America. Black Sabbath's debut album was released. Cigarette TV ads were banned in the US. Apollo 13 was launched, and then they had a problem. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Beatles' 12th and final album, Let It Be, was released. Ah, oh, sad. I know, yeah. The Aswan High Dam in Egypt was completed. The Isle of Wight Festival had 600,000 people attend, making it one of the largest festivals of all time. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, The Who, Richie Haven, Joan Baez, and many more played there. Elvis began his first concert tour since 1958. Uh, also, 1970, saw the first New York City Marathon. And the Goodies debuted on BBC Two here in the UK, and they were like a comedy trio uh, who were quite funny and very surreal, if you don't know who the Goodies are. Okay. We also had the births of quite a few cool people. Nolan North, Nick Offerman, Beck, Kevin Smith, Heather Graham, Minnie Driver, Warwick Davis, Simon Pegg, Rachel Weiss, Vince Vaughan, Jason Lee, Uma Thurman, Tina Fey, Naomi Campbell, Octavia Spencer, Christopher Nolan, James Gunn, which is... Handy, considering just in one of his films. That's, that's right. Yeah, M. Night Shyamalan, River Phoenix, Jennifer Connelly, Matt Damon, Ethan Hawke, and Paul Thomas Anderson. We also had the deaths, sadly, of Jimi Hendrix, Ed Begley, Billy Burke, Ian Forster, Janis Joplin, and Rube Goldberg. And we had the film debuts of Brian Blessed, Danny DeVito, Robert Downey Jr., Tommy Lee Jones, Shelley Duvall, Frank Langella, Stallone, Tom Selleck, Paul Savino and Sissy Spacek. I love that Stallone just just a one name. You don't you don't bother saying Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, you know just. It could have, what if it was Frank Stallone's debut? Year? Oh my Maybe god! That's... I'll just no. I'll double check. Let's see. No, it was <laughs> it was sly. I also okay. like the fact that Robert Downey Jr. was like debut. Yeah, well, it must have been when he was uh, yeah. a kid in one of his dad's films. I'm yeah. guessing. So we debuted the same time as Tommy Lee Jones, which is crazy. Yeah, but his dad was a was like a was like an avant garde filmmaker. I'm guessing it was probably like yeah, you know something. he probably had like a walk on line yeah. when he was like five years old or yeah. something. But still interesting, for yes, sure. Yes, definitely. But that was 1970. Okay, what did uh, what did you think, though, uh, for 1970 then, Mike? Well, you know, I, I've, I, it, I've said before how I'm not a huge fan of 70s cinema in general. And I think as we've gone through these years, I've actually reformed that opinion. I think I do like more 70s films um, than I may have thought in the past when I go through it year by yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I will say 1970 wasn't a banner year for me. I could really only find seven films that... I remember seeing for sure. There's a handful of other ones that I, I kind of think I saw as a kid, but yeah. uh, I really try not to include those if I don't have any actual memories of watching them. So, um, and and of the seven, you know, I don't know. If there's any of them that I could probably I couldn't live without. But it, you know, it was an interesting year. Yeah, there was a there's it's lots of bleak movies. I always find the early seventies there was lots of movies which are quite they were downers. You know, you just I think which quite a lot to do with the time. You know, the Vietnam War things have been going on and right, all that kind right. of stuff. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Some of them, there are lots of films you didn't really want to put on unless you're in a happy mood because otherwise if you're feeling <laughs> a bit down, you put them on, you feel even worse. Right, exactly. But uh, my number 10 is actually uh, Michelangelo Antonioni's, it was a second English language film, but he'd, he'd done La Ventura and La Clise, but it's uh, Zabriskie Point, which stars Mark Rochette, Daria Halperin and Rod Taylor. It's a bit of a counterculture kind of thing. A guy who's, he's, you know, he's fighting the man, ends up meeting up with this girl. You know, they have, they fall in love. Things happen, people die. It wasn't that big of a hit at the time, but it's uh, it looks stunning. The cinematography is beautiful, and it's sort of become like got a bit of, become a bit of a cult film. And I always in, I enjoy watching it mainly because it is it's stunning to look at. Some beautiful scenes of the desert, and it's uh, it's it's just a nice well not nice but it's a cool a cool film. Very cool. I have heard of it, but I have never seen it. 
All right, well, my number 10, now now here, as I said, I've only seen seven films that I can remember, so my top three are films that I want to see. Okay. Uh, actually, and uh, two or, I think two of the three of them are ones that I own, but uh, <laughs> re- number 10 is Rio Lobo, starring John Wayne and directed by Howard Hawks. Yeah. I yeah. was like a bit of John Wayne. I've seen that. It's a great film. Didn't quite make my list, but it's a great film. Well, there you go. Yeah, I, mean, I want to check it out. I've heard good things about it. I do own that one, actually. They just put out a Blu-ray of it fairly recently, um, and uh, always like Howard Hawks, always like John Wayne, so. I want to check it out. Yeah, there's definitely you'll enjoy that one if you watch it. Okay, my number nine is uh, it's a western. Uh, it's like a comedy comedy western. Well, no, comedy drama western because it does once again there's some bleak moments in it. That but it's Little Big Man that stars uh, Dustin Hoffman and Faye Dunaway, and Hoffman's playing uh, a 121 year old man, and it starts off when like 19 when the present day well 1970, and he's being interviewed, and it he claims that he uh, was a captive of the Cheyenne. He was a gunslinger. He'd been with Wild Bill Hickok and a scout for General Custer and all these things. And, and he was the sole survivor, well, the sole white survivor of Little Bighorn, things like this. And then it goes back and we see all these events happen through his life. And it's it's basically an anti-establishment film about, you know, the Vietnam War and things. But it's, it's also, it is very funny in places, but there's also massacres and things like that, which the Wild West, you know, there's some... There are some famous massacres, unfortunately, right. from that time. But uh, it's it's a very interesting film to watch. The old when the old man makeup on Hoffman was also pretty good for the time. It's a good one. It's probably one of the funnier ones on my list. All right. Well, my number nine is a movie. I'm not going to say too much about it uh, because I have a feeling it could show up on your list. But it is Kelly's Heroes, uh, starring Clint Eastwood, Telly Savalas, Carol O'Connor, Donald Sutherland, even Gavin McLeod from The Love Boat and Don Rickles. Uh, about a group of U.S. soldiers uh, sneaking across enemy lines to get their hands on some secret Nazi treasure. Uh, sounds like a great film. It's one I've been familiar with for a long time. I've just never gotten around to it. So I am looking forward to checking that out. With that cast, it's got to be at least at least decent, if nothing else. Yeah, it's, it's all right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, might, we might get to it in a bit. <laughs> all right, yeah. That's thought maybe there was a small chance. Yeah. Okay. My number eight, it's another Western. I think I've got four Westerns on my list by the look of it. Yeah. But yeah, number eight is Soldier Blue. I don't think I have any Westerns on my list, oh, just, okay. yeah. <laughs> just so I can see how little overlap we're going to have today. Uh, well, Soldier Blue is uh, directed by Ralph Nelson and stars stars Candice Bergen and Peter Strauss and Donald Pleasance. And it's inspired by the events of the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre. See, unfortunately, another massacre. <laughs> another another yeah. massacre film. Candice Bergen and Peter Strauss end up being united after the two uh, two survivors after the group that were with is massacred by the Cheyenne. And then they go off and they end up meeting up with the with the cavalry who then uh, go off to massacre some uh, some Native Americans. But it's just, it's all a bit of back and forth. And then you, you know it's all going to be inevitable. You know you can see what's going to happen. You know there's going to be this massacre, and you're there going, "No, it, it's you want them to get away, but you know it's going to happen, and it's it happens." But it's the way it's done again. It's it's very well shot, great scenery, and great performances by all involved. All right. Well, my number eight. This is the last of the films that I want to see, but I haven't seen is Patton, starring George C. Scott. I believe he won an Oscar for it, uh, and written by Francis Ford Coppola, although not directed by him. Um, but you know, I mean, this is it's one of those films. It's it's universally known. Uh, I actually have it queued up in my Netflix queue. I just haven't had a chance to watch it yet. And uh, but but I you know I'm very interested to see it. So that's my number eight. Yeah, I've I've seen that one, but only in pieces. I've never sat down and watched the whole thing. Right, right. I so it's, I've caught I've, I've caught bits of it, you know, here now and again. So I didn't want to put it on my list, but the bits when I have seen it, it's always been really good. But for whatever reason, I've never had a chance to watch it all in one sitting. Sure, sure. Okay, my number seven is another western. <laughs> uh, is it a massacre film? Uh, 
well, you know, yeah, people die. Okay. Uh, and it's a bit of a down. It's also got a very painful initiation scene. But it's A Man Called Horse, mm-hmm. uh, starring Richard Harris, who's like a British aristocrat who gets captured by the Sioux. And he's in, he's enslaved and she's like an animal by the Native American tribe. But then he eventually he begins respecting them and they respect him. And he learns the language and he ends up becoming part of the tribe by going through this, this painful initiation, right, where basically has hooks put in his back and he's hanging from on his chest or something and he's hanging oh, from, I oh, know, it's, when you're watching it, it's nice and it feels like it goes on forever. But it's really, it's the film is really good. But it's a, it's a hard watch for those scenes as well. But it's good because you, you realise, you see, it's like, it probably could be a bit like a darker version of uh, Dances with Wolves, I suppose. Hmm, okay. you know, that, that kind of same basic, it's, oh, it's a white man who comes to respect the... the uh, the natives and and becomes part of the tribe and and wants you know to live like they do. Well, that sounds very powerful. Yes, almost as powerful as my next film, Ooh. Hercules in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I had a little feeling this could be on your list. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. you know, it's so. For those of you who don't know, it is uh, one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's earliest films. It's pretty terrible. It's a it's a very cheap, I think, Italian made kind of uh, story. It's a story of Hercules, the god, you know, the Greek god, coming to new, modern day New York City, and it. It's really, I mean, it's pretty awful. But it is one of the one of those movies I watched as a kid. It was one of my first exposures to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, you know, I watched it. On, it was on TV a lot when I was young and reruns. And uh, I mean, it's it's a, it's a pure cheese camp. You know, classic, oh, yes. uh, and I use that word <laughs> yeah. very reservedly. Uh, but I do have fond memories of watching it when I was a kid, even if my brain recognizes that it's a pretty terrible piece of filmmaking. Yes, yeah, it's it's worth a watch if you haven't seen it. Just for, just pure, for the just sheer novelty value, yeah. of yeah. it, yeah. yeah. But it's it's not it's not on my list. But I have seen it. That is more than fair, sir. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, my number six is Les Circle Rouge or the Red Circle by directed by Jean Pierre Melville and starring Alain Delon. Andre Bourville and Jeanne Maria Volante, and the, the latter name, you may not recognize it, but you'll recognize his face because he played the bad guy in Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more. You know, he had to watch and everything with Clint Eastwood. But the Circle Rouge is basically about two criminals, one who's uh, one who escapes from prison, one who's let out on early release. They ended up meeting up and plan a heist, and it's got some great scenes. It's one of those ones as well where you have these people, you know, these, these guys, they don't actually say much to just stand there staring a lot and looking at each other looking really cool especially Alain Delon and they plan this heist and then there's a really tense heist at the end police are after them and other criminals are after them and it's it's a bit, bit of backstabbing double crossing but it's really good really tense and there's a great scene where Alain Delon gets out of his car and stands looking at the boot of his car for about five minutes but it's really good <laughs> Okay, I, sure. I can't say anything more about it because we'll spoil it, but I really like that scene. It's just because, yeah, it's a great film, great performances, very stylish and very cool. One I've been meaning to see, actually. I've heard it's, a, you yeah. know, I've heard very good things. It's obviously a very well regarded film, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Okay, well, my number six is Scrooge, starring Albert Finney and Alec Guinness. And this is just really one of those, you know, I think when people in their head think of the Scrooge tale as yeah. a film, uh, when they're not thinking of the Bill Murray Scrooged or you know some various animated classic, this is the one that people think of. It's the one that I was shown in school as a kid, and that used to be in a you know on repeat at Christmas time all the time when you know on television when yeah, I was a kid. Yeah. So uh, you know it's a classic story. Obviously, the story of Scrooge is is really you know a timeless tale. And uh, I don't know if the movie holds up all that well like as an adult viewer, but certainly as a kid, I watched it over and over again. So that's my number six. Excellent. Okay. Uh, my number five is Five Easy Pieces, which stars Jack Nicholson and Karen Black. Jack Nicholson's playing uh, a blue-collar worker who works in the oil fields in California, but it turns out he's actually uh, 
a classically trained pianist and comes from a family of musicians and he he keeps getting into arguments with people. He ends up having to go back to us because his father's dying. It's just it's just following this person who just doesn't seem to want to fit in anywhere. He just wants to be be left alone to do his own thing. He doesn't like being hemmed in. He doesn't like he doesn't like have expectations put on him. It's got a great scene in the diner where he's talking about how he wants just some toast, but he can't have it because just toast isn't on the menu. It's just it's it's a great scene. It's a brilliant performance by Nicholson. And it's uh, it's a classic. Uh, it was nominated for a few Oscars as well and Globe and Globes. And it was in 2000 was selected to be preserved by the Library of Congress in the National Film Registry. You know, I own that movie on Blu-ray somewhere. Uh, and <laughs> I just keep not being able to ring myself to watch it because it's I just know it's a Jack Nicholson film and I'm probably not going to enjoy it, even though I know it's a good film. Yeah, yeah. But I, I will get around to it one of these days. It does. It is. It does have lots of scenes where he's angry and shouts. Right, right. Yeah. All right, well, my number five, it's been a while since we've had one of these on one of my lists. It is a Disney film, and it is The Aristocats, which is, uh, you know, it's cats and singing and Disney animation. It's not one of my favorite Disney films, I will say that. Uh, In the Disney pantheon, it certainly isn't what I would consider, you know, one of the better ones, per se. I've never actually seen the whole film. I've only seen snippets of it here and there, but I've never really really wanted to see it. I don't know why. (laughs) Right. It's got moments that I like, and I do do enjoy some of the the characters, uh, but it's just not, you know, it's not a a real Disney classic. But in in a year like this where I'm limited in the films I've seen and of the ones I've seen, I'm limited in the ones that I really loved, uh, Aristocats comes in at number five. Uh, So I I had a feeling that would be on purely because it's Disney. Uh, My number four is MASH, which uh, directed by Robert Altman uh, and stars, Donald Sutherland, Tom Skerritt, Elliot Gould, Sally Kellerman, Robert Duvall, loads of other people as well. I don't really need to go into much detail because there was, you know, you probably heard that there was a TV show based on it, but it's <laughs> set in the Korean War and it focuses on basically these doctors working at the Mobile Army Surgical Hospital and because of the, the horrors of what they're seeing as well, they basically just try and have a laugh all the time, get drunk, have a still. It's just all funny moments going on. It's, it's more like a series of moments made which make up a film. And you see the horrors of war, but you also have the very funny moments as well. And it's a Robert Altman film with a huge cast, which he always did so well. And it's, it's yeah, it always makes me laugh when I see it, but then also makes you feel really sad. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is one of those ones that I'm pretty sure I've seen it, but I, I couldn't separate the memories of the film from the TV show in my Yeah, head. yeah, I can understand and, that, yeah. Because I don't think I've seen this film in very many years. So I couldn't put it on my list because in good conscience, I couldn't really, you know, r- really remember how I felt about it. That, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. All right, well, my number four is a film from a beloved science fiction franchise, uh, although probably one of my least favorite entries in that franchise. It is Beneath the Planet of the Apes, a uh, sequel to The Planet of the Apes, one of the greatest films of all time. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, it's it's a, like everything else. It's bleak. It's dark. It's a downer ending. Uh, it is cool to see Charlton Heston show up again for a little bit, but he's not the main character, which I think is a bit of a misstep. Um, and so, you know, I, I love this franchise. So even the bad Planet of the Apes movies are going to end up probably in my top 10 because I just, you know, I really, I really enjoy them. But yeah. um, it's still... It's probably the, my second least favorite of the original five films. So that's uh, that's my number four. Yeah, it's one of the. I was thinking about putting it on my list, but it was one of those ones where I know I've seen it a few times, but it didn't really didn't really hit with me. So I know I know what you mean. It just didn't. Yeah. It was a shame. Some of those sequels, there could have been lots of potential at the time. Right. But they, uh, didn't right. quite. Didn't quite get get them right. Right. Uh, okay. Exactly. Uh, my number three is Two Mules for Sister Sarah, which stars Clint Eastwood and Shirley MacLaine. Um, basically, Clint's got a gets mixed up with Shirley MacLaine, who's a nun, or is she? And a group of rebels and things like that. And it's a, it's a good spaghetti western. Great uh, performance with by Clint and Shirley MacLaine. You know, 
the they work well together. There's good chemistry there because they're arguing for most of it, but you could just the banter's really good. Most enjoyable, some cool iconic you know shots of Clint Eastwood shooting people or standing there looking cool. And uh, I really like that one. Another one I, I have not seen, unfortunately, although I, I have uh, meant to for a long time. Oh, definitely. Good good film directed by Don Siegel. Well, my number three marks the first film on this list that I, I do really love. <laughs> so the next three <laughs> films are all three films I truly enjoy. Uh, and it is Let It Be, starring the Beatles, which has a, a pretty complicated history. Uh, you know, it was, it was a film that was made. I think it was released theatrically. It wasn't on home video for many, many years. Uh, I think it's mostly been available uh, as bootlegs. I'm, I'm still not sure if you can buy an official version of it or not. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is, I'm obviously, I'm a huge Beatles fan. If you're a Beatles fan, I think this film is is utterly fascinating. If you're not a Beatles fan, I think it's still pretty fascinating, but it's clearly one meant more for, you know, diehard Beatles fans. Uh, yeah. But it is really fascinating to watch this, this sort of turmoil-filled period of the Beatles where they were at odds personally, but also making some of the most incredible music of their career and just seeing how those songs were built and what was going on. And I remember when I watched this film for the first time and I was a musician at the time and, you know, I was in my little band and I thought I was cool. (laughs) And then you watch this film and you get to see literal genius at work. And I mean, it was really pretty mind blowing for me. I have to say it was, it was definitely one of those things that sort of took me beyond just being a fan of their music and, and really gaining an appreciation for just, how incredible that band really was so it's really it's a, it's a fantastic film if you can track it down i highly recommend it yeah it is it is a good one it almost made my list it was very close but it's uh just it was just kept getting pushed down a little bit more but it's yeah it's it's great seeing those kind of things and it is crazy you know the the conflict amongst them all but what what it produced is incredible yep exactly okay my number two is a science fiction one uh called colossus the forbin project and it's basically this guy dr forbin has built this huge supercomputer which is in, under a mountain, impervious to attack, and powered by a nuclear reactor, and it's basically hooked up to the American defense system, and it can—it's like an artificial intelligence, and it's got—it's con- got control of all the nuclear missiles and everything, and he switches it on, and then Colossus tells them that there is another, and it realizes that there's a—they realize there's a Russia have also got a supercomputer, and the two computers hook up, and basically, bow, bow, bow. yeah, the computers bow, hook bow, up. Bow. They launch, you know, the computer romance. Yeah, but it's if only. No, they basically just say humanity can live uh, the peace of plenty and content or the peace of unburied dead. Basically, the computers are doing exactly what they're programmed to do. But if uh, humanity steps out of line or tries to stop the computers, then they will be all killed. Right. But it's uh, it's a great film. Great sight. It blew my mind, I think, when I saw it when I was younger. But uh, really good. And the way it's the way it's done, because then they realize the computer's hooked into all like the closed circuit TV and things like that. And they're trying to figure out how they can actually talk about it without... Uh, without it knowing it's good good film yeah this is one i i really want to see actually i uh i it sounded really really cool when i was doing my research and i definitely want to check it out yeah every now every few years there's always talk about a remake i think the last one was about five years ago and they were saying will smith might start in it but i've not heard much more of that since then right 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 all right well my number two is interesting i'm not sure how people feel about this film to be honest with you so it was a huge hit back in 1970 big 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 hit and i had never seen it until it came out on blu-ray a couple of years ago and i was expecting it to be really cheesy and i guess some people think it is but i thought it was really great uh and it is love story starring ryan o'neill and ali mcgraw 
I guess some people think it's really cheesy. You know, love means never having to say you're sorry and everything. I didn't really know what to expect. I just knew it was this big, big hit. And I watched it and I really fell in love with it. I thought it was a terrific movie. I thought it's a great romance. Uh, you know, the story of this guy and he, he's, he comes from a rich family and he falls in love with a girl who's not from a rich family and there's all this strife and then she gets sick. And, you know, it's it's a melodrama, but it has a lot of humor in it. And um, I don't know. I just I really dug it. I thought it was good performances. I thought it was a great film all around. Um, but But apparently some people out there think it's just a big old cheese fest. So I don't know how people feel, but I like it a lot. It was a it was a huge uh, huge hit. The one to make a ton of money. Though, yeah, I think. yeah, yeah, big big hit for the year. Yep, exactly. Didn't quite make my list because I've seen it and it's not as soppy. You know, you hear your love story, things it's going to be all soppy and everything, but it's you know it's a good drama. Yeah, and these people going on, but it didn't didn't make my list. But uh, fair good enough. choice. Thank you. Okay, my number one. You've already mentioned it, but it is Kelly's Heroes. Ah, yes. Wow. Directed by Brian G. Hutton. Great. Well, a great comedy war movie. Right. And uh, it's got it's got. The late great Harry Dean Stanton and it. it's got a, the, the cast is just immense. You're watching it and going, even the people you don't know the names, you're going, oh my God, I've no enemies from this and that. But Donald Sutherland in it is brilliant, basically playing a, a hippie, which didn't exist in World War Two, but he's really good. He's always going about enough of the negative waves, man, and all this stuff. But <laughs> right. it's great. So it's Clint Eastwood and a gang of troops find out that there's a, there's a bank full of uh, Nazi gold behind enemy lines. They get uh, Donald Sutherland and his tank troop to go and... Uh, to go there and it's it's a proper war movie as well you know they've got a fight and things like that and then they get to the town they've got a they realize there's a there's a far superior german tank in there which can take out their tanks but they've got to do work out the strategy to get in there and beat it and try and get the gold out but it's great so many it's very funny as well you've got the different characters all the, the clashing their personalities and clint eastwood's cool as everything telly savalas is doing well it's pure telly savalas he was cool oh, they're all cool I highly recommend you watching it because it's so much fun. It's one of my dad's favorites as well, which is probably why I've seen it loads of times. Right. Probably on a, probably on an awful lot when I was a kid. That's my number one. Well, I definitely want to check it out. Um, I have to say, though, I'm a little surprised my number one didn't show up on your list, which uh, so I'm sur- I don't know if that means you haven't seen it or just Ooh, didn't quite ahead, make on. it. Go I, might not, I might not have spotted it. What is it? It is Airport. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it almost did. Almost okay, did, yeah. no, that's f- fair enough. I I, re- I really love that movie. You know, obviously, I've talked about before, I'm a big fan of the disaster genre yeah. I am. Uh, and Airport isn't really your traditional disaster film because it's not like thousands of people dying in an earthquake or volcano or whatever. But it is kind of, you know, an early one from that genre with this, you know, air- airplane, a blizzard and, you know, airplanes in danger and all this stuff. Um, and I really love it. It's based on the novel by Arthur Haley. It's got an amazing cast, which includes Burt Lancaster and Dean Martin and George Kennedy and Gene Seberg and Jacqueline Bassett and uh, Maureen Stapleton. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge cast, isn't it? It really is. But the standout, of course, is Helen Hayes as the little old lady who keeps getting in trouble for sneaking onto flights. And um, she's oh, fantastic. Yeah. I forgot about her, yeah. Yeah, she won an Oscar for her role, yeah. I think for Best Supporting Actress. And um, she really helps make the film. So it's just this really great... Um, bustling film about this airport in the middle of this crisis and it it sort of starts off slow and builds and builds and it's like a drama and a disaster film and a thriller uh, all mixed into one but it's one of those ones that I loved as a kid and then I watched it again a couple of years ago when they put out like a special edition DVD or Blu-ray or whatever and I was surprised at how well it held up. It holds up really, really well. Like, I think it is still an excellent movie. If you watch it now, I think you'll still be very impressed by how good it is. That could be the problem, because I, I haven't seen it for a long, long time. Yeah. And it probably gets, because there was a few more of those kind of movies, weren't there? Yes. And yes. also Airplane as well, which is based off. Of, right, which is like a parody of I think Airplane. I think it's probably all got mixed up in my head. So probably oh, fair enough. No, but it's, it's a... uh, just looking here. Yeah, it had, as well as uh, the Best Supporting Actress, it was nominated for nine other Academy Awards. Right, so right. It was a there big... you go. Um, oh, God. Made for ten million, 
and earned over 100 million. Wow. Yeah, you got to like that. That's a nice return. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I got a good pick though. I could see. I, I'll have to watch that again, to be honest. Yeah, it really, it honestly, yeah. it holds up extremely well. I think you'll enjoy it quite a bit. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Well, that's an excellent choice. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, that wraps up our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, and that's going to start to bring this episode to a close. Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell people what they can look forward to next week? Well, next week, there's not going to be any after the endings. It's going to be one of our brilliant many episodes, but there's a good reason for this one. That's right. Because Exciting stuff. Yeah, because I will be getting on an airplane. Uh, oh, my God. After we've been talking about airport. Oh, Jesus. Not, <laughs> yeah, no don't watch storm. airport before yeah. next week. Let's, yeah, let's no make that clear. Right. Uh, but I'm getting on an airplane and flying over to New York City where I will be meeting up with Mike. Uh, for the New York Comic Convention. Yeah, yeah. New York Comic Con uh, taken over by Phil and Mike this year. It's going to be quite a lot of fun. We are going to record some special content while we're there, I'm sure. We will have some neat stuff for you guys in the upcoming weeks. We're also going to be doing a ton of interviews with some amazingly talented people, definitely some people you've heard of. So you're going to hear a bunch of those start to pop up in uh, future episodes. But in the meantime, since we're both going to be away next weekend, uh, we will be having a mini episode to hold you over until we can return with a regular episode so it's going to be a lot of fun oh yeah and and considering Mike and myself have known each other for years this is going to be the first time we've actually met in the flesh so that's going to be yeah We should have some fun stories to tell. I'm I'm looking forward to what the next few months of the show are going to bring between our stories and what we record and our interviews and everything. I think it's uh, we're going to finish out 2017 uh, maybe a little bit drunk uh, with craziness. We'll <laughs> yes, see what happens. Yes. Yeah, there's going to be lots of good uh, content heading your way. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, on that note then, we'll finish up for today. As always, we thank you for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Hey, I'm fake Chad Michael Collins, and you're listening to After the Ending. (laughs) Still managed to get nine minutes in before we actually started recording. (laughs) That's our fast version. (laughs) Yeah, not not even email, but an actual like physical mail package. Wow, proper old school. That sounds bad. Let me let me be clear. We did not receive a mail package. (laughs) That that would probably violate several laws. (laughs) Yeah, a a true classic if ever there was one. I just took a drink then. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> uh, which uh, I quite enjoy, but uh, Mike's not, you're not that big of, well, you do. And because her whole family was killed in Wheelsy. Nope. That was, that was the end of a sentence. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't make any sense. I read that dreadfully. <laughs> All right. Well, Phil, I think it's time for some big trivia. Damn it. <laughs>